Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode. We're happy to be with you. Yes. Thank you so much for the questions you've sent us. Thank you so much for your prayers for us. Thank you for sharing this podcast with others. Thank you for your encouragement. It's yes. so great to get letters and notes of encouragement that the podcast is actually blessing you and reaching mm-hmm. you, and that really helps us to to know we're not just talking into microphones. That's right, and to one another. Right. So you just got back well, recently got back from a an, an amazing adventure. Shall it I was say. an amazing adventure. Yeah, I went to the ice planet Hoth. <laughs> the ice planet? Yes. There were tauntauns. <laughs> no. It felt like it. Yeah. Because I went to... Alaska. Alaska. Yeah. It was one of those bucket list things for me. I always wanted to go to Alaska. I had never been to Alaska. I have now spoken in 47 of the 50 states. Uh-huh. I have yet to speak in Nevada, New Mexico, and Arkansas. Okay, if you're so, there. So yeah, if you're any any listeners out there from Nevada, New Mexico, or Arkansas and you want to help me get those little pins <laughs> in all 50 states delivering yeah. TOB talks, yeah, I'd be happy to come. Like yeah. you'll go top of the list in terms of requests. That's right. So I did go to Alaska. A dear friend and sister in ministry, friend of our families, Jen Messing, who runs ID Retreats. She was leading a retreat to Alaska, and she invited me to go. And I went, and we had about 30 people. And it was a nice, intimate setting. We did reflections each day. We had mass, adoration. Then Jen and or I would give a reflection on on John Paul's teaching and then we just had fun in God's creation out in yeah, the, out in the ice, planet. ice planet Hoth. Yeah, We went skiing in the only, this was a surprise to me, I'm a big skier, Alaska has only one ski resort, Wow, Alieska. We skied there. What was really weird though, it was winter conditions, it was, you know, early April, but it was, it might as well have been February or January, but for... The fact that the sun doesn't set until like 10.30 at night yeah. or 10 o'clock at night. It was crazy. It was did f- funny things to my brain. Yeah. And the, the, the angle of the sun in the sky was also very different. I, but think, there, I think those are some of the things that made it feel like a different planet. It did feel like a different planet. So, so other than your normal, yeah. even winter experience. And you're walking on four or five feet of snow. Yeah. So we went on some hikes in the woods and we hiked to a glacier uh, or hiked around a glacier and you're you're walking on literally 4 plus feet of packed snow so you're like you can tell you're you're elevated that was very strange we did snowshoeing we went to a, a as i said a glacier which was amazing these these crazy ice formations and the different colors of the ice and yeah it was it was astounding i thank you got to see just some of the Lord's beauty that is so unfamiliar, and yet it's His heart that is just showing forth new glories. Yeah, new sacramental visions of 
the heart of God revealed through his creation. Mm-hmm. We, we, you and I, lived in the Rocky Mountains for a time, or not in them, but right on the border in Denver. Yep. And there's a, a beautiful, obviously, mountainous beauty in Colorado. But this was different. This was a ruggedness in the peaks that I had never seen uh-huh. before. It was rugged, naked creation like I've never seen. Really mm. awesome. Truly yeah. awesome. Our God is an awesome God, and we see it in his creation. Well, thank you to all those who went on that trip and got to be part of that group. And blessings to any podcast listeners in Alaska. Yeah, that you that's have right. a new connection Imagine there. we do have some podcast listeners in Alaska. That's right. In fact, I know we do because I gave a talk in Par- was it Parma. Is that a town? <laughs> I don't know. Parmesan? <laughs> Gosh darn it. It's P. Starts with a P. Palmer? Palmer. Okay. Palmer. There it is. Palmer. What did I say? Parma? Yeah. <laughs> Palmer. Sorry, Palmer people. I loved you. We, we had a great turnout for COVID times at a talk in Palmer, Alaska, and some people came up and said they, they do listen to the podcast. So. so hi, Palmer. Shout out to my Palmer friends that I met last week. Right. Well, shall I share a question? Yes. Is this our first question? From from a patron. A patron, mm-hmm. which is a reminder, hey, if you want to get your question boosted up in the ranks in terms of possibility that we will answer it, it's a little bonus we offer to our patrons at the Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, we would be so grateful if you would become a patron. Mm-hmm. Your monthly support enables us to do what we do. Can't do it without our patrons. So, Yes, this is our first question, as always, from a patron. And did he or she give her name, his name? No, it's an anonymous question. Anonymous question from a patron. Whoever you are, anonymous questioner, thank you for your support of this work. My wife just broke the news that she's pregnant with our first child. Praise the Lord. She's so scared of childbirth that she's scheduled an abortion. Mercy. What can I do? Mercy. I want to be a father. Mercy. Lord, we ask your your mercy on this this dear woman who's so frightened and this dear man who's also frightened. Yes, Lord. I I'm I'm almost speechless uh hearing that. Do you hear a woman's pregnant, a married woman and the response is rejoicing and then you hear that and it's it's kind of shocking um, i'm sorry i got so shocked i, I kind of lost sense of the question what can you read the, the what's the specific question what mm-hmm. and it's the husband asking the question right yes he says what can i do what i want I to do? be a father brother uh, this is just what's coming to my heart without much thought is uh, intercede for your wife You are your wife's main intercessor. This is something that Wendy and I have have realized in our marriage and and benefited from realizing that as a spouse, you are your spouse's main intercessor, and you have a gift from God to intercede for the needs of your wife, and your wife is in need, your child is in need, that is your child in her womb, there's, there are obviously some very deep fears rooted in some very deep wounds in your wife's heart that she would think the solution to her fear of childbirth is to 
end the life of her child. Like this fear is so strong in your wife that it's overriding, uh, one would would be led to conclude it's overriding her motherly instinct to to nurture and support uh, her, this, this life. Um, brother, please, please uh, pray for your wife. I, I imagine, I'm, I mean, I would think that you would have a sense of her childhood, what she went through, what she's been through in life, where these fears may be coming from. Mm. Uh, I, I would invite you to consider go seeing a, a priest that you trust, uh, talking with him, seeking help. Uh, immediately seek help. That would be my suggestion. Wendy, what's on your heart here? Yeah, I, too, am just entering, and I hope that our listeners are as well, into prayer for this couple, because this is an attack against their marriage and against their child that is um, very painful. Um, but I, I do think of, of pro-life pregnancy centers as um, a very good resource of where you can get help and answers and and not judgment because that would not be helpful you know you want just the safety the feeling of safety so that your fears and needs can be truly addressed um so those are yeah my thoughts as well the prayer the um the help of a priest the sense that um, the Lord, the risen Lord, conquered death, loves you, knows you, has healing in store for you, and is fighting for you, fighting for uh, the good of your marriage and of your family. So I, I share all those senses. I'm, I'm led to the scripture that says Christ came into the world to undo the work of the devil. And elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about the fear that the fear of death that the devil uses in our lives. That we are we come into this world bound with a fear of death, and this is one of the main uh, tactics of the enemy: a fear of death. And Christ came to undo the work of the enemy, and we can we can just do the math there and recognize one of the great works of Christ is to liberate us from the fear of death. And it's not that the liberation from the fear of death is not so much that we no longer are concerned that we're going to die. I mean, death is an awful thing. Uh, Jesus doesn't take the the awfulness of death entirely away, but he gives us the hope that death is not the final word. But fear of death, fear of suffering, it sounds like this pregnant mother is is so afraid of her own so afraid for her own life in giving birth to this child that something's getting twisted uh, to the point that she, you know, she's entertaining killing her own offspring. Maybe to, to put this in context of the, the overall spiritual battle may be helpful both for this dear husband and father and maybe for our listeners that from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a diabolical attack against the woman and her ability to bear offspring. Why? Because the woman is destined to bring God to planet Earth. That's 
who and what woman is. In her very essence, woman is designed for the incarnation. The womb of a woman was created by God in the beginning with a foreknowledge that the womb of woman would be the dwelling place of the Most High God, that God would take flesh. The incarnation is not an afterthought in the mind of God. It's not plan B. From all eternity, God had envisaged, as the Catechism says, that's the very word it uses, envisaged the the new creation in Christ, in and through the glorification that comes through the incarnation. This was always in the mind of of God. Woman's womb has always been destined to give flesh to God. And John Paul II says in his um, apostolic letter on the dignity and vocation of women that motherhood is always related. In other words, every child conceived under the beating heart of a woman is always related to the mystery of Mary's motherhood. In other words, every child conceived under the beating heart of a woman is a reminder in the whole realm of creation, physical and spiritual, the angels and all the visible universe. Every child conceived is a reminder to the universe of the incarnation. And the angels, the good angels, whenever a child is conceived, they rejoice. They rejoice in the reminder of the incarnation, whereas the fallen angels, the diabolic world, is, is horrified at the ch- conception of a child, hates, hates the conception of a child. Um, the, the diabolic realm, the fallen angels, the demons, they are in envy of the gift that we have as human beings to bring life into the world. They are in envy that God would take flesh, that God would become human and thereby raise these lowly physical creatures we are as human beings higher in the end, higher than the angels. Scripture says that Lucifer fell out of envy. What does he envy? He envies our ability to image God, to participate in the divine life, and ultimately to give flesh to the second person of the Trinity. This is why his enmity is aimed at the woman and her ability to bear offspring. Mm-hmm. That's right in Genesis 3. Skip to the end of the story, the book of Revelation, and you have the the vision of the dragon who wants to devour the child the moment it's born, right? The, the pregnant woman and the dragon. Uh, this is the goal of the enemy. The goal of the enemy is to turn the womb, the place of life, into a tomb, a place of death. But here's the good news of Christianity. I say this to the husband who asked this question. You have the authority as her husband and as the father of this child you have the authority to to enter into this battle through your baptism, through the sacrament of marriage, through your confirmation, and fight this fight on behalf of your wife and your child so that the womb that he's trying to turn into a tomb, right? That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to turn the tomb into a womb. Uh, Excuse me. He wants to turn the womb into a tomb. But the good news of Christianity is that Christ turned the tomb back into a womb, a place of life. The battle has been fought and has been won. Dear husband, enter into that battle. You you might just say, Jesus, uh, in the authority you have given me as husband and father of this child, I claim your victory, your death and resurrection. I claim the victory of your passion. I claim the victory of your resurrected life over my wife, over her fears. I claim your victory uh, in this battle. 
these fears that my wife has that keeps her bound. Christ, you have come into this world to undo the work of the devil. And I ask you, please, Lord, I'm, I'm again praying here kind of on behalf or in the name of or, or as a suggestion to this husband, you could say, Jesus, I ask you, please, in your name, that your victory would be man- victory over death would be manifested in the heart of my wife and in the womb of my wife. Go for it, brother. Go for it, brother. And please, uh, I want to invite all the listeners out there listening to this right now, please take a moment to pray for this man, for his wife, and the child in her womb. Yes. Amen. Amen. This is a question from a listener named Mary. Hello, Mary. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you so much for all you do to spread the good news of Theology of the Body. You are welcome. Christopher's books were my introduction to JP2's wisdom on human sexuality. I'm not exaggerating when I say it completely changed my faith for the better. Praise God. Praise God. That's awesome to hear. Mm-hmm. Mary, you're, you're why we do what we do. Yes. To varying degrees throughout my life, I've struggled with mental health issues such as depression, scrupulosity, OCD, and negative body image. Mm. I find myself hoping for a future husband who doesn't share the same struggles as I do, someone who can help keep me grounded in reality. In theory, I could see how meeting someone with the same experiences could foster understanding and compassion in the relationship, but mainly I fear that such a marriage would fall apart if both spouses are mentally and emotionally unstable. Am I a hypocrite for wanting a man who will accept and patiently bear my crosses and weaknesses, but for whom I wouldn't want to do the same? If so, do you have any advice? Bless you, dear Mary. Thank you for just being honest and putting your heart out there. What I hear as I listen to your words, Mary, and the desire of your heart, what I hear is your desire for Christ. He is the perfect bridegroom. He is the one, you know, in himself, he is whole. He did take on our burdens. He did take on our weaknesses. He did take on our, the burden of, of mental health. Every burden that any human being has ever borne, Christ bore it. He took it on to, to take it through the passion into resurrected glory. So we could say in a sense that Christ has all of your same mental health concerns because he bore them. He doesn't have them in the sense that he, he had them in his own psychology or interior life, but he took them on, right? So I hear the cry of your heart for a bridegroom that has beautiful compassion upon you, can bear your burdens with you, has understanding for you, can lead you into healing, and that is a cry of your heart for Jesus. No doubt about it. Um, I also hear maybe maybe, again, I don't, don't want to read too much into it, but perhaps a fear of adding to your own sufferings if you were to marry someone who had similar burdens. And I can only say this from my own experience of married life, that certainly you, you do you do take on the burdens of your spouse. You yes. do take on 
whatever their issues may be. And I would say from, again, our own experience here, those sufferings that you take on, that you carry with your spouse, become, there is a paradox in it that it can become a joy. You, you hear this in the lives of the saints about sufferings becoming joys, and I, for years and years that just sounded just strange and maybe super pious, and gosh, I, could ne- I don't even understand that. Uh, but I, I can say after 25-plus years of married life that we've tasted that. We've tasted the joy of love. That's really the, what we're saying. That's what Christ is saying, that there is joy in loving, and loving involves taking on the burdens of the other. And I would hold out to you, Mary, the real possibility of knowing joy in loving your spouse and knowing that loving your spouse includes carrying that person's burdens. Uh, That doesn't mean you are the savior of your spouse in the same way that Jesus carries our burdens, but we are called to love one another as Christ loved us. That's the message of the gospel. Love one another as I have loved you. The good news is that Christ gives us all the grace we need to learn day by day how to love as he loves. There is a suffering. There's no getting around it. There is a suffering. There is an agony. But that agony, that suffering, that sorrow is also wed to deep, profound hope, to deep, profound joy. Uh, In the Christian life, the agony and the ecstasy go together. And I know in all of my attempts to avoid the suffering, to find some detour around the cross, in the end, what I've caused myself and others is more suffering. (laughs) So I'm slowly learning. Wendy, you have been a tremendous aid to me in this. Slowly learning how to embrace those sufferings as a path to real joy. I would just like to add, yes, I agree, my love, with all that you're sharing. Um, that I would like to add for Mary that um, I I think there's maybe a false accusation uh, against yourself when you say um, that you wouldn't want to do the same instead of in terms of um, bearing a husband's weaknesses. Um, I think that, you know, you may be having some insights about your own weaknesses and ways that you could be balanced and helped by a spouse. Um, But there's no illusion. I I don't hear you as someone having an illusion that this spouse is somehow absolutely perfect. There are ways that we do balance one another. There are times when our, you know, weaknesses and strengths um, come together in such a way that, you know, we're, we're kind of a better together. There are times when we are both weak and we need to seek help. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true of any married couple. Yes. Um, so I just want to encourage you that it's, it's beautiful that you know the Lord, that you know he loves you, that in these struggles um, you have maintained that hope for the gift of marriage, if that's the Lord's calling for your life, 
And I just want to encourage you that all that you have been through will strengthen you in loving your husband as he is. We can't know one another perfectly and check all the boxes before we enter into that place of trust and and make those vows. But we can know the Lord's faithfulness and that he will come through for us, both in our personal needs and in relating and loving, deeply, intimately loving our spouse. It's springtime, and springtime is always a time of reflection for you and me, Wendy, of falling in love. We fell in love in the spring of 95. Yes. And whenever spring comes around and the trees are budding and the bees are buzzing, it just reminds us of the time we fell in love. And the other night we were lying in bed. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but we were reflecting on how little we knew one another Mm. compared to 25 plus years, well, 26 years later that we fell in love. Mm -hmm. And it it just, it's a marker. And I'd hold this out to you, Mary, that falling in love is is a beautiful gift that holds out a promise, a a lifelong promise of getting to know the person better. And when you embark into married life with that adventure ahead of you and and embracing that adventure, there, as you were saying, Wendy, the, the differences balance one another. And there's always more to learn. There's always more to know about the other. This, this is something that John Paul II really helped us with. He gave us a template going into married life about the dignity of the person that we've carried with us, that the the mystery of the person is such that the value of the other is in some way infinite. You never get to the bottom of it. There are always new treasures to discover. And if you are committed to doing the hard work, and it is hard work, doing the hard work of real intimacy in the sense of into me see, getting to know the other more deeply, I think you will find that your spouse will compliment you in surprising ways, Uh, compliment you in in ways that you didn't even know you needed to be complimented, Uh, calling out your own gifts, calling out your own weaknesses, challenging you to grow in ways that you don't even know you need to grow yet. And you will do the same for him. It's not just you who are in need of of a spouse who can guide and help and help you to grow. He will be in need as well. And your particular unique personhood will be that gift to him as well. Yes. Thanks for being the unique person you are, Wendy, who has helped me in ways there's no way 26 years ago I could possibly have known how much I needed your help. Nor I. How about that? <laughs> Pretty. Thank you, Lord. Thank yes, you. Lord. Thank you, Lord. Our next question is also from an anonymous listener who says, why do people say that pornography is adultery? I struggled with it, but I never slept with anybody else. I love my wife and I did not give my heart to anybody but her. She's the only woman in my life. It would be considered To use Christ's expression, it would be considered adultery in the heart. Now, I hear you saying that 
you haven't given your heart to anyone else. You've only given your heart to your wife. And I, I don't want to contradict that because I think there's a certain truth to it. But I would also challenge you that maybe you are not looking honestly enough at what you are doing when, as you admit, you have struggled with pornography. I don't know to what degree, but it doesn't matter to what degree. I think it's also helpful to look at the word adultery and what it actually means. I remember in third grade in Catholic school when we were going through the Ten Commandments, and somebody said to the nun, Sister Adelaide, what, is, what does it mean to commit adultery, or why do they call that sin adultery? And she said, well, it's called adultery because that's the sin that adults commit. <laughs> no, no, it is not called adultery because it's the sin that adults commit. Okay. It's called adultery because—I— <laughs> Yeah, I forgive you, Sister Adelaide, if you're still in purgatory, be released, be released. But I I don't (laughs) like, I do not like when adults make, I was about to say the S word, um, I'll refrain, but make poopy scoop up (laughs) (laughs) because they don't want to talk about the real thing. Uh, There there would be a way to explain that to a third grader where you don't have to make stuff up. Anyway, uh, moving right along, adultery comes from the Latin Add alter, to alter something. Looking at pornography is certainly an alteration of God's plan for sexual love. To adulterate something is to twist it, to alter it, to to distort it according to its original purpose and plan. And the original purpose and plan for God making us male and female and calling the two to become one flesh is to form an image, a sign, a sacrament here on planet Earth of the eternal exchange of love found in the Trinity and of the love between God and his people, Christ and his church, Christ the bridegroom, the church the bride. You've heard me say it a gamillion times on this podcast. The whole Bible can be summarized in five words. God wants to marry us, and he wanted that eternal marital plan to be so plain to us so obvious to us. He chiseled an image of it in our bodies by making us male and female and calling the two to become one flesh. This is what makes our bodies not only biological but theological. They tell the divine story. What story? God wants to marry us. God's love is free. It is total. It is faithful. It is fruitful. This is the love that a man and a woman commit to at the altar. And Part and parcel of that commitment of giving oneself freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully, is that you are not giving yourself in that way sexually to anyone else. There is an act that is so part and parcel of what marriage is that if you engage in that act with anyone else, you violate the very commitment you made at the altar. Right? When I do the dishes for you, Wendy, it's an act of marital love. Yes. But I can do the dishes for my next door neighbor without violating our wedding vows. That would be fine too. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something if I were to do with my next door neighbor, it would violate our wedding vows. And that is the sexual act. But also, that involves sexual arousal. My sexual arousal is meant for you and no one else. Um, intentionally looking at 
other people to sexually arouse myself would be a violation of what I've promised to you and you alone. And that is why pornography is adultery committed in the heart. Mm. Do you want to add anything to that, Wendy? Yeah, I do feel a certain compassion, and I know you do too, for this man who and sent this question in, that there is something that feels maybe like an, a false or unfair accusation to um, say that you're an adulterer. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having this sort of clarification. And yeah, that statement needs some nuance mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and so I, you know, I, I can feel that. Um, but I, I guess my thought is that since you said you struggled with it, I think that's beautiful that you said you struggled rather than I enjoy it sometimes and it's not an issue. Yeah, that would deal? not right. be good. So there's a, something honest about knowing that it is in some way wrong, hurtful to you, to the person in the pornography, to your wife. That That's all showing some conscience about it. That's really a gift of the Lord. And I'm very grateful you've received that gift. I think that, you know, it could be helpful rather than dwelling on a sort of self-defense against this title, adultery. It might be good to take time with that scripture and imagine yourself in on the mountainside where the Lord mm. gave his sermon hearing him speak these words to all the people that were gathered to hear him, who knew he had something life-giving to mm, give them, mm. just to place yourself as in your imagination in that beautiful hillside, hearing Jesus in person talk about, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Read those words in the scripture and Imagine that he's speaking that to you and let that really just purge your heart um, of all that is still in there from the times that you did seek out pornography so that his love and his life-givingness can enter into that. That's a beautiful, beautiful suggestion, love. Uh, I'm reminded of how much John Paul II says about that line in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I tell you. And that but is the transition from the old law to the new law. You've heard the commandment not to commit adultery, but I tell you, there's something more. There's something the law does not give us that we desperately need. And St. Augustine summarizes it so well. He says, the law was given so that grace might be sought. In other words, the law in and of itself does not give us the power to fulfill it. Uh, the, The law is just that. It's just a law. And the law without grace is is death dealing. That's what St. Paul says. Uh, The law was a source of death in our lives because no one can perfectly fulfill the law on his own his or her own strength. And that's the purpose of grace. Grace is the gift that enables us to super abundantly fulfill 
the law. So again, St. Augustine says, the law was given so that grace might be sought. And grace was given so that the law might be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Truly, what I loved about what you said there, Wendy, in inviting this listener to, to place himself there on that mountain to receive those words, is, is it's the invitation into that grace. You know, we, we know it's possible to, to follow the rules, at least externally, without a real conversion of our heart. That's what the whole but is all about. You've heard the commandment, but there's more. I'm after your heart. Jesus is mm. after us on the inside. He wants to rearrange the furniture in our hearts, if you will. He wants to, to, re- he wants to transform our desires. Here's one of my favorite lines from the Catechism. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Spirit of the Lord gives new form to our desires. And here's another one of my favorite lines from JP2. He's talking about this line in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Well, what the heck am I supposed to do? JP2 says, should we fear the severity of these words or rather have confidence in their salvific power? Hmm. That means power. Their power There is power in these words to save us from our lusts. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He's saying, let me change your heart, Mm. right? The the problem is in your heart. You have an attraction to, to lusting after people. Let me transform that. Let me redirect that. Let me make lust itself distasteful to you. Let me show you the true beauty and dignity of the human body and of the marital embrace. Let me show you the glory of the mystery revealed in the two becoming one flesh, that you are filled with such awe and wonder at the mystery revealed in and through the two becoming one flesh, that the thought of violating it becomes distasteful to you, that that it becomes, I can't imagine treating another person that way. I can't imagine looking at porn and treating this other human being as a thing for my pleasure. Let the Lord in there to rearrange the furniture of your heart. It's real. It's not a magic trick. It's not like you say this special prayer and tomorrow you'll be totally pure. But if you take up your cross every day and in the very moment of temptation, instead of indulging it, instead of just repressing it, saying, Lord, come into this lustful desire, Come into this desire to treat another person as an object and untwist it by the power of your death and resurrection, untwist in me what sin has twisted so that I can come to see the true beauty and glory of your divine mystery revealed through the human body as you created it to be. John Paul II says, coming to see and sense and feel the beauty of the mystery that our sexuality reveals, this is the only true and authentic motivation for fulfilling the law. Mm. It's not just some dry technical rule that we're supposed to white-knuckle it through. Uh, If we're white-knuckling it through following the law, it's a sign that our hearts are in need of that inner transformation, and it's real. It's real. I want to invite everybody 
out there listening to this to consider, please, taking a course through the Theology of the Body Institute. If you never have considered just taking TOB Level 1, uh, we offer it online every couple months. Uh, we're offering it in person in June here in Pennsylvania. Uh, go to our, our link here in the show notes where you'll see our schedule of courses. I invite you please to consider that if you haven't done so already. And if you already have taken TOB 1, then take TOB 2 <laughs> and come back for other courses. We have a course on sexual ethics coming up this summer here in Pennsylvania. Check uh, the link on that one as well. Uh, we have a course on the Blessed Mother, uh, Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery. And Mar oh my gosh, coming to understand the true beauty and dignity of Mary, especially for men, is a key, a fundamental, basic uh, help in overcoming lust in our lives. That course is coming online in May. I know registration is already open for that. I invite everybody out there to consider that. It's uh, so important that we continue the journey and dive deeply into the treasures that our faith unfolds for us. We come to discover who we really are. We come to discover that we are indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gifts of life and love. And learning all this helps us become what we are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.